Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, that's where we're going to be tonight. Ephesians chapter 3. And we are going to start in verse 14. Uh, We will recap real quick everything that we have talked about so far in the book of Ephesians. It is written by Paul, who is very important in the early church, and it was written to churches in and around the city of Ephesus, which was very important in the Roman Empire. There were both Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks, in the church, and we read about Paul's song of praise in chapter 1, then his prayer for the church, And then we saw how grace affects our lives. And then we saw how grace affects our relationships with others. And then last week, we talked about our personal ministry. So again, the first half of the book of Ephesians is all about the gospel. It's rehearsing the gospel over and over and over. The second half of the book of Ephesians is all about how we live in response to the gospel. It's about how the gospel affects our lives. So Ephesians chapter 3, we will start in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you instruct us in righteousness. We thank you that you teach us how to live. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word. And so in these moments that we have together, let your spirit move among us, that we may love you more, that we may commit ourselves to you more, so that your kingdom would expand in this world, and so that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so a show of hands real quick. Who here is task-oriented? You love accomplishing whatever it is. You like making to-do lists. You want to get things done. Raise your hand if that's you. Okay. Now, who here is less task-oriented, more people-oriented? You love building relationships, being with people. You love having conversations. Anybody like that? Raise your hand. All right. <laughs> oh, wait, oh, great, great. Well, now that we have identified these two groups, we are going to have a battle royale. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Now, uh, when we look at what we, have, um, what we have here in Scripture, we see something very interesting about this. We have looked at the gospel from several different angles so far in the book of Ephesians. And if you are like me, if you're task-oriented, you're like, Paul, thank you so much for 
telling us about the gospel and telling us all the different facets of the gospel. Now, can you please give us something to do? Can you please provide us the checklist? I want, I want a project. But when we arrive at 14, that's not what we get, is it? We have covered the gospel. And Paul is ready to tell us how to live in response to the gospel. But first, Paul wants to pray for us. Now, didn't he already pray for us in chapter 1? Aren't we past this? I mean, how much prayer could we actually need? Now, because of my natural proclivities, I'd like to say Paul is doing this because he is people-oriented and not task-oriented. But the truth is, no matter what Paul's personality, this is the word of God. And it's not just the words that are God's. It is the structure of this letter. So some of us, we are willing to charge into battle before sharpening our swords. And it's like what God is saying by structuring Ephesians this way. He is saying to us, wait a minute. You need more prayer than you could possibly imagine. So he takes this opportunity to give us prayer. Now we have seen in Ephesians the gospel over and over and over, and we're about to get to where that changes how we live in community with others. We're about to see how it transforms our lives. But God wants us to have the gospel first, then he wants us to be prayed up, and then he wants us to go into action, right? A lot of us would rather go, hey, uh, I have received the gospel, now let me go. But here we have a prayer that enables us to do the work of God. So we're going to look at this prayer tonight. We're going to look at Paul's prayer part two. And it's actually different from the first prayer that we have in chapter one. The first prayer was for enlightenment. This second prayer is for enablement. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at his prayer and we're going to see it like this. We're going to see his opening remarks. We're going to see the main content of his prayer. And then we're going to see his closing. So let's go at it. Number one, his opening, verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It says, for this reason. He's actually picking up a thought that he had in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, for this reason in that verse. But Paul got almost distracted by himself, and now he's returning to what he was going to say. The reason that he's talking about, that reason is that we have been saved, that we have been reconciled to God, that we have been reconciled to each other, that we have experienced redemption in Christ. So because we have experienced salvation, Paul wants to pray for us. He says, I kneel, right? I kneel before the Father. What's interesting is in the Jewish culture, and Paul was a Jew, kneeling was not the common posture of prayer. Standing was. But you know this, there's a time to kneel, right? Have you ever thought about this? Why does a guy kneel to ask a girl to marry him, but does not kneel to ask her to go to a movie? Because we kneel In the greatest times of earnestness, earnestness, don't we? We kneel when it's most important because kneeling is a a position, a posture of humility. It's a way of honoring someone. When something is very serious, we kneel. 
We see this throughout the Old Testament. Daniel was a Jew, and he was a political prisoner in another country. And that country passed a law that said nobody can pray to God. So Daniel realizes how, how serious this situation is, and what does he do? He kneels in prayer three times a day because it was a serious situation. We see it with Jesus, too. The night before he was crucified, he goes into this garden to pray. And what does he do? He kneels. Kneeling is a sign of seriousness. So Paul says here that I kneel before the Father. He is saying, this is how serious this prayer is. This is the fervency that I pray with for you. He is highlighting the seriousness of the situation, his love for them, and his love for the glory of God. So verse 15. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What are some things that you have named in your life? What are some things that you have named in your life? Children, pets, cars, <laughs> anything else? Okay, I was hoping one of you would say a beach house. That would have, and anyway, okay. <laughs> Now, we name things because it is an act of authority, right? You name things that you have authority over, your, your kids, your pets, your cars. Think about Genesis 1 and 2. God creates man in Genesis 1, and it says this in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God creates the animals, then he creates man. And then what does he tell man to do to the animals after that? To name them. Why? Because the people have dominion over the animals. Adam had dominion, authority over the animals. And who named Adam? God. Because God has authority over Adam. That's Paul's point here. God has authority over every family from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. That God named them because he is over them. That is, all families, all people groups in the earth, Jews and Gentiles alike, God has authority over them. And so you know, he says this right before he prays. He's saying, the one who has authority over everything is the one who hears your prayer for healing from cancer or from a hangnail. The one who named the stars is the one who hears your prayers when you are anxious, when you are hurting, when you are joyful, when you are suffering. That is the God that we pray to, and that is how he loves us. So after this introduction, after his opening remarks, he gets into the content of his prayer. Starting in verse 16, we see the meat of what Paul is saying. Let's look at it. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. What is something that you asked your parents for? What is something you asked your parents for? Car keys. Car keys. Did somebody say money? Is that what you... 
Okay. What, what's something you've asked your parents for? A hamster. A hamster. Oh, yeah. That's the right idea. Anybody else? Maybe a BB gun when you were a kid? See, uh, th- there is a difference between a ridiculous request and just a, a normal request, right? Now, what differentiates a reasonable request and a ridiculous request? Who's asking it? Who's asking it? Yeah. Anything else? The cost. The purpose. The purpose. The ability to grant it. Let's, let's talk about that. If the person that you are asking is able to provide it, it's not quite as ridiculous. So if you asked your parents for your graduation present for $1 million, would that be ridiculous? Yes. Okay, if it's not ridiculous, please raise your hand. We'd like to get in touch with your parents. <laughs> of course it would be ridiculous. But if Bill Gates' child asked for a million dollars, that's not quite as ridiculous, is it? Right, because it's his ability to grant the request. He is rich, so he can do that. What Paul is saying here, he is saying, I'm about to ask God for some things, and I am asking that he grants them according to the riches of his glory. God is rich beyond what we can imagine. And that doesn't just mean with money. God is rich in power, authority, wisdom, kindness, strength, mercy, and so on. So when we bring our requests to him, especially if they are requests similar to what we're going to look at, they are not ridiculous to God because he is rich in all things. So with that, Paul begins to ask. He has three requests to God concerning us. So the three requests that Paul has, number one, that we will be empowered, that we will be empowered. What are some things in this world that require great power? I mean, literal physical power. What are some things in this world that require great power? I don't know this for a fact, but I'm assuming an excavator (laughs) requires great power. What else? Put a plane in the air. Put a plane in the air, yeah. Or a rocket ship. Anything else? Now, what is required for these things is a great power, a power that exceeds what is normal, something that is greater than most. Paul asks that we would be strengthened with power in our inner being. What would we need this kind of power for? What do we need great power for as Christians? Sharing the gospel, yeah. Yeah, standing against temptation. Just keeping, just getting through life and keeping your witness. Yeah, yeah. Maintaining your integrity. Yeah, all of these things. Loving other people. Loving God as you should. Seeking holiness. 
living righteously for our students? I mean, is there a harder time in your life than going through middle school and high school when everybody else seems to be going this way? To stand up against that, to stand up for what is right, to do what you know God has called you to do. That requires great power, doesn't it? So Paul asked that we would have this power. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? He says that you will need this power and you will receive this power to be my witnesses. And he means more than just sharing the gospel with others. He means witnesses as in also how you live because you represent God on this earth to those who do not know him. This is the type of power that we need. And he says that, we will be, that he wants us to be strengthened with power in our inner being. This is our hearts. It's the center of who we are. It's the place from which we make our decisions, where our emotions come from. It's where our deepest thoughts come from. This is what he's saying. Paul wants us to be changed at the deepest level so that we would have lives that are transformed by the gospel. And who empowers us? Where does this power come from? It says, yeah, God and the Holy Spirit. God in the Holy Spirit is in us, right? We've talked about this before. And he is the one who works on us so that we would invite Jesus to fill us more and more and more. And we've talked about this before, that there's a difference between the initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? When he moves into you, that happens when you are saved. And then there is something called the filling of the Holy Spirit, and that is when you are constantly longing to live for God and the Spirit fills you up more and more. It's something that happens daily. So he is asking that we would be constantly filled with the Spirit. Here's Paul's point. The more the Spirit empowers us, the greater the transformation we will see in our lives. The more we will look like Christ. So imagine that we were to go outside here and we were to find the car with the biggest battery, okay? The, the largest energy source. And we were to take jumper cables and we were to attach them to that battery. And then we took the other side of those jumper cables and we attached them straight to your tongue. <laughs> would that transform you? Of course it would. Would that power change you? Yes, of course. You would look different, wouldn't you? That's what we have in this power. When we are empowered, we look different. We look more like Jesus. We are transformed into Christ-likeness. So he prays that we would be empowered. And then number two, he prays that we may know love. That we may know love. Look at verse 17 with me. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, 
so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul asked that we would be rooted and firmly established in love. He uses two different metaphors here. One is dealing with plants. One is dealing with buildings. I am no gardener, so I will ask you, what purpose do roots serve? What do they do for the plant? It's where the food comes from. It gives support, gathers nutrients from the soil. That the roots enable the growth. It connects them to the source, right? And what we read here is for the Christian, we are rooted in love, namely the love of God. And then it uh, talks about buildings. I am not an engineer. We do have a few engineers here. They know a lot about buildings. Maybe you're like me and you don't. But I think we can all know this, that in order to have a good building, you have to start with a good foundation, right? If the foundation's messed up, then the house won't stand. It'll eventually fall. What he prays for here is that we would have a foundation in what? Love, namely God's love. Now, love is something intangible, right? You can't physically put your hands on it. But there are outworkings. There are examples of love that we see. And God's love is wholly different than ours. We have an outworking of God's love, don't we? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is, God shows his love by sending Jesus, his son, to die in our place that we may become his children. That is a tangible expression of God's love. It is the gospel itself. And then Paul goes on in verse 18. He says, May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. So this was written 2,000 years ago almost. Millions, if not billions of people have read this. So I have a question for you. Has anybody figured this out? Has anybody been able to write down the dimensions of God's love? Has anybody actually been able to figure the length, the width, the height and depth of God's love? No. No, and there have been plenty of engineers. They could have figured it out by now. Now we know what Paul is doing here. He is using something that is physical to describe something that is not physical. He wants us to understand because we can picture height and depth. So if we can picture that, we can understand a concept of God's love, that it is so big, that it is so wide, that it is so magnificent, we could never actually measure it. That's what he wants to drill in to our lives. That's how much God loves you. And then he says, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. Paul is asking for these people to know, right? We've talked about knowing before. It's not always know in the way that we think of it. So let's do a little exercise. What is two plus two? Four. If you mess that one up, well, it's okay. This is a place to mess up. What is the capital of Florida? Tallahassee, okay. 
What is the common name for H2O? You know all these things, right? You have a factual knowledge of them. But we've talked about this before. There's a difference between knowing something and knowing something, right? There's a difference between factual knowledge and experiential knowledge. What Paul is talking about here is knowing God's love, knowing Christ's love in an experiential way. But he says something interesting. He says, I want you to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. How does that make any sense? He's saying, I want you to know something that can't be known. How is that possible? How can we know what can't be known? Well, here's what he's talking about. God's love is so great that we will never completely understand it. That we can never exhaust our experience of it. We will never get over God's love. Our experience will never go past God's love. There will always be more of God's love and new ways for us to experience it. Now, we can't understand something like that, right? We can't even imagine it. Because think about our world. We're limited, aren't we? If you go out to California, they're always limited on water. You would think water's everywhere. Uh, Texas, turns out they're limited on energy sometimes. Uh, it, you've heard several people talk about how our natural resources are running out. It's like everything in this world is finite. Everything is limited. We don't have an infinite supply of it. And then on top of that, I don't know that there's anything that we have experienced on earth that we just want to keep experiencing over and over and over. So what is your favorite food? Ice cream. All right. Okay, that one's kind of hard to work with, actually. Okay, what, what's your favorite main entree? Pizza. Okay. Let's say that uh, I said tonight, and I'm going to use pizza, but whatever your favorite food is. I said, hey, great news. We're having pizza for dinner tonight. You might be a little excited. And then I say, and good news, we're going to have pizza tomorrow night. You still might be kind of excited. And I say, this is such good news. We're going to have pizza every single night this week. You, mean, you might be like, eh. I guess, I mean, I could do that. And then if I say, we're going to have pizza every single night this month, you wouldn't be excited. Your cholesterol might be excited. You're not going to be excited, right? Because even the good things on this earth, we can't, we don't want to experience them over and over and over. And this happens with even the best things, right? With relationships, why is it that sometimes you're like, man, I just want to have a few minutes to myself? Because even here and now, with the greatest gifts that we have been given, we don't want them all the time because they're not perfect. But what we do have and what we will experience all the time for eternity is something that is perfect. That is the love of God in Jesus Christ. When we hear that we're going to experience it forever, we may go, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know if I like it. But the truth is, it's going to be greater than you could ever imagine, and you will never get sick of it. 
You will long for it more and more and more, and your longing will be fulfilled and fulfilled and fulfilled over and over again. That is what we have to look forward to, and that is what Paul is asking that we may know. And then number three, he asks that we may be filled. Verse 19. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants us to know, to experience the love of Christ so that we would be filled with the fullness of God. Now that fullness of God, it's referring to his perfection. God is perfect. In what ways is God perfect? In every way. He is perfect in knowledge, perfect in wisdom, perfect in love, perfect in patience, perfect in kindness. That is what Paul is referring to here. So let me ask you, how would your life be different if you were perfectly wise? Would you make better decisions? How would your life be different if you were perfectly loving? Would your relationships be better? Of course they would. This is what he is asking for us. As God fills us, we become more like him. Our lives are transformed more and more so that we look more and more like Jesus. So imagine we have a balloon and we blow that balloon up. And then we put one drop of water in that balloon. That drop, whenever we shake the balloon, it may go, you know, whatever way. But we know this about it. The balloon is not going to be shaped by that one drop of water, right? It's pretty much ineffective in doing anything in there. But if we take a balloon and we fill it with water, that's a little different, isn't it? Now the balloon is shaped by the water in some way. The main substance of this object is more water than balloon. It looks kind of like water. And then its purpose changes, right? What do you do with the water balloon? You throw it at people. It's a weapon, isn't it? You antagonize people. You don't put a string on it and try to hang it up at a kid's birthday party. When we are filled with the fullness of God, we're different, aren't we? We look different because we're shaped by God. We have a different substance, don't we? We have a different purpose. We no longer live to make ourselves famous. Instead, we live to expand the kingdom of God and glorify him, make him famous in this world. That's what Paul is asking for again, that we may be filled. So that is the content of Paul's prayer, and then he gets to the closing. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he ends this prayer with a few lines praising and glorifying God. There's actually a word for this. It's called doxology. So he has asked God to grant us these three things, and then he praises, and also, praises God and informs us of something, that these requests we have, 
God is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. In other words, God is able to do what we ask of him and far more. Are we actually living according to that? I mean, do we take risks for the sake of the gospel? Do we live in a way that things are going to go terribly wrong if God does not miraculously come through? Or do we live according to our calculations and estimations of people and situations? Is Anchor Church going to be a church that takes bold risks to reach people for the glory of God. We know that God grants us these things for his glory, that he may receive all the credit, that his name may be known more and more through the universe. That's what we need to be all about as a church. Verse 21, to him be the glory in the church. That's what we have to be. We cannot be a group of people that is longing to make a difference in this world so that people will clap for us. We have to be people who are on mission to share Jesus with everyone so that God would be praised because that is going to be the song throughout all of eternity. We're singing it now and we will sing it forever. We want as many people as we can possibly find to join us in this song. We are going to be a church that lives for God's glory, for his kingdom, not ours. This is why all of this that we have talked about, this prayer that we have looked at, this is exactly why one of our core values as a church is gospel faithfulness. Jesus is about to be carried away by his captors, about to be crucified and killed. And what he says is, the time has come for the son of man to be lifted up so that God may be glorified. Here's what he's saying. The gospel, that is my life, my death, my resurrection is all for the glory of God. So if we are going to be a church, we are going to be one that shares the gospel over and over and over, not just amongst ourselves as we are transformed by it. We are going to share the gospel with everyone so that they would look to God and see how gracious he is, that he would look on us and have favor. Us who hated him, us who rebelled against him, he sent his son to die in our place. When people hear this message and when they experience new life in Christ, they cannot take credit. We cannot take credit. Instead, only God will have the credit. So that's why we have to be faithful to the gospel. We can be a church that affects the community, that does great good in this world, and still doesn't glorify God. God forbid that happen to us. Let us be broke. Let us not have a place to meet Let us have no effect if we don't glorify him because that's what we were made for. So that's what I got for tonight. That's where we're going to end it. A beautiful prayer. Again, I know that some of you may have some questions about something that we have talked about. If you do, 
We'll talk a little bit afterwards. You can ask a question. But for now, I want you to find someone that you are not very familiar with and ask them about the greatest trip they, had, they have ever been on. Not talking about like the 60s and 70s. I'm talking like the greatest <laughs> vacation they have ever been on. So ask them, listen to them, and then pray for them. And we'll come back and have some announcements. A reminder of our mission as a church. This is just a rewording of the Great Commission, but our mission is to see lives transformed by the gospel. That is why we are here. That's what we are here to do. And then our vision is redemption and restoration in our homes, churches, and communities. We talked about that one last week. We're going to talk about these more coming up. I know that some of you uh, have questions about the timeline and where we are. So right now we are just having a Bible study. We, after Easter, will begin, uh, after we finish Ephesians, we will begin what is kind of like a membership class where we talk about the church more, what church membership is, if it's biblical, uh, what, what that means in a church like this, and what we believe, how we are structured, all that sort of stuff. And at the end of those four or five weeks, we will have a time of uh, dedication. If you want to become a member of the church, then there will be a time for you to do that. And so I know that some of, some of us are still very involved in other churches on Sunday morning and your membership is there and you are hoping to move your membership and you don't know when it'll be at that time. And then I know there are others who are saying, well, I'm just here for a year. What do I do? We will talk about that a lot more in those classes. Um, then uh, we will not meet on Easter. On Easter, we will not meet. I encourage you to find a church and go to it on, on Easter morning. Um, I'm going to church on Bayshore, First Baptist Niceville, if you will. I encourage you to go there. James is going to preach the gospel. And whatever church you go to, try to serve there. There are going to be people who don't know Jesus because it's Easter and they're supposed to go to church. They know that. So serve in that church and uh, enable others to enjoy and to partake in, an, in a service and hear the gospel. Um, the building search team, if you are on that team, will you raise your hand? The building search team. All right. So they are working extremely hard, giving up a lot of their time, a lot of energy to doing this. And uh, I thank you, you know, all of us thank you because we know how hard you work. Thank you very much. If you have uh, if you happen to think of a place like, hey, have y'all considered this? You can reach out to one of them. You can reach out to me. But they are really, really going at it. Pray that God will give us wisdom as we continue in this. Pray that he will make his providence extremely clear to us so we can know our next step. Uh, if you would like to give to the church, you can do so online at anchorfreeport.com. You'll see a button and it'll tell you what to do. Then one more thing, um, we have a night coming up for our students. So that is the, you know, the age between elementary and before college. Those are our students. We have some here. So if you are a student or have a student, they connect with them and, and they'll have a good time. Uh, any questions before we dismiss? All right. Rachel, would you pray for us?